The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. And welcome to Power Lunch. I'm Eamon Javers. In today for Tyler Matheson. Here's what's ahead. Down but not out. Europe's benchmark index on track for its best quarterly performance since 2009. Is there an alternative to U.S. stocks? And can it be found in Europe? Plus, Southwest shares rallying 25% quarter to date. The company reinstating its dividend and forecasting strong travel demand. Later this hour, we're going to ask the CEO if rising labor costs could put a lid on growth. Kelly? Eamon, thank you. Welcome. And hi, everybody. Stocks wavering this afternoon on recession and Fed tightening concerns. The Dow had been up 178, but now we're down eight. We're down eight for the S&P as well. And the Nasdaq's down half a percent now. Money's been moving into some of the defensive areas. As you see, Campbell's Soup rallying after their earnings. General Mills and Smucker all hitting 52 weeks high, a 5% pop for Campbell's today. They're coming off strong quarterly earnings and an upbeat outlook. In fact, pricing power helped offset lower volumes there. Also, new financial guidance from Coinbase within the past hour. They're seeing 2022 revenues down more than 50% from last year. A lot of that already priced into what's been a very tough stock. It's down less than 2%, trading around $41 a share, Amen. And there's been a lot of action in the Treasury market. Look at the move in rates over just the past week or so. One week ago, Fed Chair Powell gave a speech that the market interpreted as dovish. Stocks soared, yields fell. The 10-year went from a high that day of 3.8%. Now it's at 3.4%. So what does this move mean for the stock market? Let's bring in Doug Butler. He's portfolio manager and senior VP managing director with Rockland Trust. Now, Doug, I'm told that you are bullish here, uh, but it really depends on the Fed. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think we've all seen that the Fed really, the dovishness even started earlier as the as rates dropped through the four level. Um, we anticipate that if the Fed comes in and the governor's expect inflate as he expect uh, the fed funds rate to be at um north of five for 2023 we think that that's going to put a little bit of pressure on the markets and certainly if it hits the five and a quarter level we think that is probably another down four percent or so from when you, from when you say a little pressure on the markets when you say a little pressure on the markets what do you mean are we talking sort of nightmare apocalyptic scenario or are we talking no, you, you no, know we're talking a couple points we're talking not not dramatically down from uh from last week's levels anyway so um, so no huge no, trama- not dramatically down from here sorry yeah so what do you buy then? What are you telling people if you're out there trying to pick stocks in this environment? You're looking at the Fed. You're wary of some kind of swing coming up. Uh, you are looking at a couple of different stocks. Which ones do you have in mind? Yeah, I think um, one stock that we love in the energy space is EOG. We think they have a pristine balance sheet, almost no debt. We think they make money even if you get a sell-off in oil. If there is a recession, they still will be a fantastic play here. especially for the long run. They've been distributing. They've been increasing their dividend 10%. They've been distributing special dividends. They're they're a fantastic company and probably the best run and best cultured company uh, in the space. We think that they they can amply grow to 150 bucks within the next year. You also like JP Morgan and Meta, Doug. A couple names are a little more controversial, but before (laughs) diving into that too much specifically, I'm curious if the next move from the Fed chair is actually 
to walk back the dovishness that the markets ran with last week. In other words, to get more hawkish again, you know, to what extent could that really spoil the, uh, the landscape here? Yeah, I think that that puts the kibosh on the Santa Claus rally. But I, I think that the walking, I don't think they're going to walk it back hard, is what I would say. I think they're, they might be a little less uh, optimistic. But really, what you're looking for is that 2023, where the median ends up and where the, gov- where the governors think they're going to uh, be for the full year. Um, that average, if that average is below five percent, it's gonna it'll be great news. And I think the markets are starting to price that in. You see the ten year rolling over down to three and a half. And big question is is does that prompt a recession? We don't really think so. So I think that's that's the me reason for both JPM and Meta. They're different stories. JPM, they're from the CEO on down, they've been very talking and very defensive and a very cautious outlook. But if you look at their results, they've been successful at cutting costs. They've been successful at maintaining their their margins. Um, we think they can do that even if there is a bit of a pullback in the economy. Um, and Meta, frankly, if they would just get out of their own way for a few weeks, um, the stock has ample room to run. I really view them as sort of, you know, remember Microsoft back in the 2000s when they kept having problems in Europe and having problems everywhere, sort of late early aughts and uh, late 90s. I'm dating myself here. But yeah, I think that Meta has a tremendous future if it can just stop making mistakes. I want to ask you about that because there's a big if in that sentence that you just said. If it can stop making mistakes, right? I mean, so you're betting on Meta. You think they're in a good position here, the the company formerly known as Facebook. Uh, Is that a bet just on the the sort of ego of one man, Mark Zuckerberg? He has come out and said, uh, you know, he got it wrong when it came to the metaverse. He put too much money in, hired too many people, sort of bet the farm on the metaverse now is trying to reel that back in and trying to get some humility here about what the market is telling him. Do you think that Mark Zuckerberg now gets it uh, and is going to be able to refocus this company? I mean, obviously you do if you're picking this stock, but this is not a guy yeah, who's I, had a lot way, of humility I over the years, right? He's not a guy who's had a lot of humility. And frankly, he's done a lot of great things. Um, he's gotten this one wrong and he like, and he bet too much of it on this, but the company still, I think our premise of the company is not to be aligned with Mark or feel like that there's one man running the show, but that's the share structure we signed up for. So that's what we have. You knew that now, going do in. Now, do we want to stay in? And yet we knew it going in. And we believe that their positioning is fantastic. Um, and we believe that Mark Zuckerberg is not an irrational individual. I, I mean, there are other CEOs who I wouldn't entrust this much hope or this much runway, but I believe Zuckerberg will get it turned around. And I believe, okay. like, look, I think Google and Apple are going to solve the Apple problem. Google and Facebook are going to solve the Apple ad problem as well. Doug, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Not an irrational individual. That's an enormous endorsement for a CEO these days. Uh, Doug Butler, thank you for being with us. All right. Bye-bye. There is no alternative. That's been the investing mantra for U.S. stocks for some time. But European stocks have quietly been rallying. The European benchmark Eurostox 50 index is up 18 percent this quarter on pace for its best quarterly performance since 2009. That far outpaces the S&P, which is up about 9 percent. Here to discuss whether Europe is investable again is Jeremy Schwartz, the global chief investment officer at Wisdom Tree Asset Management. Jeremy, why this sudden uh, sudden run up here? Is it about a weak dollar? 
Uh, Kelly, thanks to, for having us. Uh, you know, and I'm actually calling in from London. Usually I'm in Philadelphia, but I am uh, <laughs> traveling with our team in London. So this is an nice. appropriate segment. Good to have um, another Philly, you know, boy, Philly boy on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I do think some of this sentiment was so bombed out, you know, that there is the washout of sentiment when things look really terrible. Um, if you could just get a slight improvement from terrible to just bad, you know, you can get ha- have a big rally. The dollar does seem to have turned. Certainly the euro, um, you're showing that the chart there, the strength in the euro has coincided with, I, I, we do think the Fed is going to pivot harder than they're saying right now. We say you can't trust what they're saying. You got to watch what they're going to do sure. in the coming six months. And we think they're actually going to potentially start cutting rates sooner than the market expects. Uh, the momentum on the dollar has definitely turned. We had some dynamic currency signals that actually went long, the foreign currencies over the dollar for the first time in at least uh, 12, 18 months. Hmm. Uh, and, and so that, that those things are turning, momentum's turning. Valuations um, are really more than 50% off. Um, you know, if you say what's buy, what's on sale, Europe is 50% cheaper than the U.S. When we look at uh, a basket of high dividend stocks, eight times earnings when in the foreign markets versus 18 times for the S&P 500. They're forecasting weaker earnings growth already. Um, and people are starting to say the S&P has to downgrade their earnings estimates. So all those things are, we think, you know, supportive for that, uh, that, that rebound there. Jeremy, let me ask you about this, because, you know, all of the stuff you just mentioned, notwithstanding, I mean, the big problems in Europe, right? I mean, you had a war shock, you had an energy shock, you had a Russia sanctions shock. All of those things are still in place right now, uh, yeah. although we've been living with them for a while. But all the fundamental problems that Europe faced at the beginning of this year, it's still facing now at year end. So how can you be bullish on Europe when all those core problems are still still there? Well, it gets to like what's factored in the price, like what's yeah. already in the price. People know that those are current issues, so it's not a surprise. And so then the question is, what can actually turn for the positive? Now, people are starting to believe this war will last you know, forever. Um, and that may not be the case. I mean, hope we have to see how that goes, but it doesn't, there's no positivity on that today. We say like, what could inflect going forward? You know, that, there could be a surprise in that. Um, you know, it's going to take time, obviously, but it, all this stuff is factored in the price. And so then you say, uh, it really, you know, the growth, we often say growth is not return. Economic growth often leads to subpar returns because it gets factored in very bullish expectations and on growth, very bullish valuations. And at eight times earnings, this stuff is factoring in a lot of negative news where the S&P still has, uh, call it a rich multiple. So, Jeremy, I'm curious if you look at the st- individual stock performance, could you make an argument for, OK, it's the luxury names there? You know, these are all about fundamentals, because what I hear you saying is, is really about a weak dollar, um, m- more dovish Fed here. Is there any fundamental case that company by company that would argue for Europe's continued outperformance? Well, for, first, the currency itself, I think, does help make Europe more competitive. You know, it, it's been a very weak currency so far. Uh, I mean, you, you, you walk around, you see a lot of the tourists traveling and coming here to spend. Uh, the streets are bustling, frankly. Uh, trying to get to restaurants is, is packed um, here in London just this week. I, I, so I do think there is the currency being cheap actually makes a lot of those global companies more competitive. Uh, I do think just the sentiment turning is, is positive for U.S. investors buying European stocks, there's been negative outflows all year. Some of that's changed in the last 30 days. You're seeing a little bit of, of inflows return. Um, but I do think it's a matter of these cheap stocks, cheap currencies, momentum's turning. Uh, and a lot of that, that sort of negative news has been priced in and just things turning and fucking just a little bit more positively 
is why we like something like that. That DTH is the International High Dividend. It's a broad, diversified exposure. Yeah. So you're not betting on any one company. It's over 500 stocks in that basket. Um, you know, so it's sort of spreading the risk around. Uh, you know, to the broader national market. Well, and again, apropos that you're in London <laughs> for this discussion. <laughs> very right. Very Jeremy, appropriate. Thanks very much, Jeremy Swartz with which Wisdom Tree. And how much fun to be in London when England is doing well in a World Cup, right? I mean, it must be absolutely insane there. No wonder it's hard to get a seat at a restaurant. And coming up, a tech reset. Sector layoffs may not be done yet. They're expected to accelerate into year end. A lot of people worried about that. It's creating a new reality for investors to navigate. Plus, Halliburton, Enphase, and Lithium Play all named 2023 top picks, but some might pose more risks than others. The trade, that trade in today's three-stock lunch. And as we head to break, shares of MasterCard and Lowe's trading in opposite directions after both boosted their buybacks. MasterCard by $9 billion, Lowe's by $15 billion. Power Lunch, we'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Power Lunch. The labor market has been one of the bright spots for the economy this year, but there's one place where the skies have definitely turned cloudy, and that's in tech. According to Jeffries, over 210,000 tech workers have lost their jobs this year amid mounting fears of a recession. Nearly all of the big players have been impacted, with cuts and freezes coming from Meta, Amazon, Microsoft, and others. Our next guest says these reductions are a sign the industry is facing a new reality and there could be more cuts on the way. Let's bring in Brent Phil, an equity analyst at Jefferies. Brent, it's great to see you again. And perversely, does this make you positive on any of these stocks because it means they are cutting back expenses quite dramatically? I think it's the early signs of, of the time to get positive. Clearly, it's been a really tough 22. It's going to be a rough first half of 23. Uh, we think there are more job cuts underway. Uh, we obviously published this report last night, just this morning. Uh, both uh, Zuora and IES in both in tech had over 10% layoffs. So we're going to see more. It's going to continue to weave through the, the public and private market, probably more so even in the private market in the beginning of next year. Hmm. So I don't think the pain is over. But I do think the good news is that uh, companies – that were running, you know, high growth and no lack of profitability are now switching. And you're seeing investors applaud that. You look at MongoDB and how well the stock did in their uh, their, their focus on, on profitability. So I think we're in the early stages of this, but I still think we have some more pain to go for yeah. tech. Uh, first half of the year is going to be a difficult backdrop of demand. 
How much of this, though, is correcting the excesses of the previous two years? Because I, it was Hewlett Packard, I think, when I read about their recent job cuts, they said that they had hired 10,000 people over the previous year, which is like hundreds of people every day. Um, did companies overexpand? 100% yes. I mean, we're dealing with, uh, with the tech excess. And I've said this repeatedly, the tech industry is notoriously never in front of the puck. And if you know how to ice skate, you know what I mean. It's just hard. You can't, you got to go where the puck is going. And they're always behind. And so I think we're now playing catch up. The pandemic, every tech company got on your show, told all the, the analysts, hey, like the, this is the new reality. It's not a pull forward. Uh, and that all ended up uh, not being true. And so I think all these companies are seeing a pullback in demand. And it doesn't matter if you're in cybersecurity, applications, infrastructure, you're seeing the pullback. Uh, and so there's a, a tremendous amount of excess. And we've looked at, if you take Google, their headcount was up over 25% or close to 25% in the last quarter. Uh, they're going to uh, grow a uh, high single digit next year per Wall Street estimates. So you, you can't have these headcount numbers growing faster than revenue. Uh, so I think ultimately uh, there's a tremendous amount of excess. I mean, you look at Amazon's headcount, you look across the board, there's not one vendor to single out. They all were guilty, and we're going to see uh, we're going to see it, it, at a minimum a freeze, and and probably continue to see additional layoffs as we go into 23. That will restore the health of tech. That will restore the margin structures, and it is no longer about just growth. It is about responsible growth and profitability. And the only way you get there, because revenue is fading, the only thing you can control is the bottom line. And so that's Brent, headcount. Brent, let me ask you about what comes next, right? Because we're painting this whole industry. It's all obviously one tech industry with a broad brush. But each individual story here is so different, right? You look at Amazon, you know, that's a story about package deliveries during the pandemic. Facebook is a story about an aging user base, not adapting to new technologies fast enough. Uh, you look at Twitter, I mean, that's its own bizarro, surreal universe, right? Each one of these has a different reason for the predicament that it's in. So how do you see them coming out of this series of layoffs? Are they gonna come out in a different order or at a different pace? Are we gonna rank them differently on the other side of this? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. There's tons of microclimates, so we can't uh, take a broad brush, but I think we can take a brush on the over-exuberance of tech in the last two years post the pandemic, uh, that clearly was in. So I think there's no disputing that. Uh, what I think is gonna happen coming out of this is they are gonna be stronger companies. And uh, one of your guests, uh, Brad at Altimeter said this, and I think he said this very well. I think we're gonna come out of this and realize that we didn't need as many uh, people doing this job. We can be more efficient. You know, many have, have, have talked about salesforce.com. You know, do you need as many sales and marketing people there to actually execute on the revenue goal. And I think in many of these companies, you can have 10% less capacity and still deliver on the same revenue number. And that just shows you how much excess there, there was. I mean, it's everyone in Silicon Valley knows this, right. that basically, you know, 20% uh, of the developers do 80% of the work. So, you know, do you really need It's just many figuring out which 20% <laughs> are doing it though. That's the challenge for management, know? right? <laughs> Yeah. Brent, in all seriousness, what's your favorite stock right now before we let you go? Uh, into next year, I like Intuit. It's got uh, the, the exposure to both consumer tax and small business. Uh, really uh, great story in terms of uh, uh, focus on the buyback. And his post this year has had, you know, 10 plus years of double digit uh, or single digit returns. 80% of those years have been double digit. So really consistent story would be one name we'd focus on.
All right, into it. Brent, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Brent Phil. You know, Thank I you. get everything that Brent was saying, but your heart just breaks for these workers who are bracing for these layoffs. You know, heading into the end of the year, they know it's coming. The analysts know it's coming. It's just going to be a very tough time inside some of these companies. Of right course, now. not to mention, he always says that they're kind of a lagging place. They're always behind right. the puck. But are they ahead of where the puck is coming for the rest of us? Right. Yeah. That means, in this case, 50% of the anchors do 100% of the work <laughs> on this show. So we know, we know how that's going to play out. <laughs> Further ahead, going south by Southwest, the airline holding its investor day and reinstating its dividend after nearly three years as travel finally rebounds. But the stock is moving lower today. The CEO is going to join us live. And first, Carvana crashing shares down 35% today as bankruptcy concerns grow. Details when Power Lunch returns. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Power Lunch and look at shares of Carvana continuing to collapse today. They're down 41 percent. That brings them below four dollars a share. This amid growing worries, the company is headed for bankruptcy. Wedbush downgrading the stock to underperform, dropping its price target to just a dollar today, citing those risks. Separately, a new report today suggests Carvana's largest creditors have signed a pact to cooperate in negotiations with the company and prevent infighting among creditors in case of a restructuring. The stock aiming is down 98% this year. If you go back to August 2021, Carvana was trading at $374 a share. It's incredible. 98%. I mean, it's just a, a total wipeout. You wonder about these efforts to protect, to protect uh, creditors from infighting. Is that even possible when you're sort of fighting over the remains after a wipeout that, of that scale? What's interesting about this as well, I don't know if you experienced this, Carvana was a real business, right? Yeah. I saw plenty of people in the neighborhood around town. You'd see the, the trucks pull up, their Carvana would, would it wasn't the famous pets.com, you know, the, right. the business plan w- without a, a reality from the late 2000s. Is this the one with the automobile, automobile vending machines that are yes. everywhere? I wonder what happens to those things, because right. those are kind of cool. Yeah, it's My 11-year-old son loves those. It's stunning because this was seen as disruptive technology that would emerge from the pandemic and reshape the way that, you know, auto sales happen. And to see this kind of about face is pretty shocking. Yeah, live and learn. Yep. Well, let's go to Kate Rooney now for the CNBC News Update. Hey, Kate. Hi there, Eamon. Here's what's happening at this hour. Representatives of former President Trump have reportedly found more items marked classified and returned them to the FBI. The Washington Post reports at least two items were found in a storage unit used by Trump. It is not immediately clear what was in those items. And Peru's Congress has voted overwhelmingly to uh, remove the country's president. The lawmakers rejected President Castillo's order to dissolve the legislature. The country's military and police are also warning Castillo against violating the Constitution. And a handful of survivors of the attack on Pearl Harbor took took part in the 81st anniversary of that event that pulled the U.S. into World War II. There were fewer centenarians than in previous years, until now a dozen or more came from around the country for the Remembrance Day. Back to you. Kate, thank you for that. And ahead on Power Lunch, ESGs versus the GOP. Republicans releasing a game plan for taking on big asset firms like BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street over their commitment to ESG. Details on their plan next, Kelly. 
And plus, regardless of your stance on ESG, energy, both alternative and traditional, is getting some bullish calls on Wall Street today. We will trade them in three stock lunch. And 90 minutes left in the trading day. We want to get you caught up on the markets, stocks, bonds, commodities, and the GOP's roadmap to fight ESG. But let's get it all started with Bob Pisani over at the NYSE. Hey, Bob. Hey, Eamon. Great to see you. Uh, we are flat on the day, but a lot of movement. We've been listening in on the Goldman Sachs Financial Services Conference. This is the second day. A lot of companies reporting on Outlook for 2023. Big mover today. M&T Bank here down rather noticeably. That's a, not a typo there. Almost 10%. They reported the net interest income would be a little lower than expected, uh, suggesting lower profitability. Uh, that stock is essentially at a low for the year. Fifth Third also reported today that's at a new low. Generally, I would describe the commentary there as cautious, but not necessarily pessimistic overall for the 2023 outlook. Elsewhere, take a look at the home builders. They are moving to the upside right now. Toll Brother had earnings out. Orders down 60%. That was quite a move to the downside. The first quarter seems to be starting slowly, but they're buying back a lot of stock. And investors seem to be trying to position themselves for a better second half of 2023. That stock, those stocks are moving today. Remember, home builders were the first ones, the first group to turn down early in January. They've turned around, around a little since bottoming in October. Finally, I'm GameStop, we are waiting for earnings to come out. This stock has really collapsed in the last three days. It's probably down about 20% last three days. Uh, there's been reports of layoffs this week there. Uh, that may help the company become profitable eventually. It's deeply unprofitable right now, but that's still a long way off here. Uh, we are at the lowest level since May uh, on GameStop. So where are we? The markets, uh, the sentiment's poor because there's recession concerns out there, but there's some very positive data points today. And yields are down here. The Mannheim used car index, lowest since August 2021. What does that mean? Well, inflation is maybe coming down a little bit. Uh, unit labor costs lower than expected. That's another positive sign for inflation. Productivity was higher than expected. Well, that's positive overall for stocks. Uh, and finally, China removing a lot of the COVID testing and quarantine rules. Well, that's been a big drag on the uh, commodity markets all year. So, uh, Eamon, I have to say some positive data points and yields definitely have come down uh, when those uh, productivity numbers came out around 830. Eamon, back to you. Bob, thanks. Now over to the bond market where the three-month 10-year yield curve is on pace to close at a fresh 22-year inversion. Rick Santelli tracking the action. Rick, what's going on where you are? Yeah, pretty much every maturity you look at has an interesting story today. If you look at two-year no yields since May, excuse me, since September, Eamon, they're getting close to rolling over. And if you look at an intraday of 10, and this is interesting, look at the way yields started to drop right around 9 o'clock Eastern. Now, if we move ahead and look at a two-day chart, we could clearly see we saw a big drop when we traded under 3.5%. But Bob Pisani just talked about better-than-expected third-quarter final productivity and unit labor costs were lower. He's right. But yields on something better should have gone higher. They didn't. As a matter of fact, they dropped. Why did they drop? Because traders were expecting it to be better, and they really bought it incredibly quick and reversed their positions. They were right on the trade, but wrong on how it turned out. And if you look at what's going on with the tender on pace for the lowest yield close in since mid-September, nearly three months, Boone yields are joining them. Almost exactly the same pattern. And if you look at what you talked about at the very beginning, three months to tens, approaching minus 87 
basis points. And you can see on this chart, we haven't been anywhere near there since early January, like the first few days of 2001. And Bank of Canada raised for the sixth time, but they did hint that a pause may be in order. And I think that central banks are most likely going to move in much more unison. So some of these stories have to start meshing together a bit better. Eamon, back to you. Rick, thanks. Get your story straight, everybody. Uh, oil is closing for the day. Crude prices falling 3%, mostly on economic concerns. That offset government data showing supplies fell by more than 5 million barrels last week. Week to date, crude prices are down about 10%. And RBOB falling today and actually going negative for the year. And how's this for a stat? The national average for gas across the country is just about the same as it was one year ago. That's before Russia invaded the Ukraine. Think about that. Now over to Washington, where Republicans have released a game plan for taking on Wall Street's commitment to ESG. Elon Moy has the details of that strategy. Hey, Elon. Hey, Eamon, that's right. Republicans are calling the big three asset managers the new emperors because of the influence they wield over big corporations. In a new report, GOP staff at the Senate Banking Committee argue that BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard aren't actually passive investors because they're trying to shape companies' climate or social policies. The report calls for more shareholder disclosures, more voting authority for retail investors who hold shares in index funds or 401ks and more investigations by Congress. It states... Each of these firms proudly uses the voting power gained from their investors' money to advance liberal social goals. And we've reached out to each of the three large asset managers for comment. BlackRock told us it respectfully disagrees with this report and warned that more regulations could raise the cost of investing. It said the conclusions are built on flawed premises and risk harming millions of everyday investors that rely on mutual funds and ETFs to help them retire with dignity. Vanguard said it wants to work with Congress on proxy voting and transparency, and said it leaves management decisions to companies and policy decisions to lawmakers. Now, Republicans are framing these proposals as a new form of corporate accountability. So, Eamon, it's likely to become one of the major themes in the new Congress. Back over to you. Elon, that's fascinating. I mean, you've heard rumblings about this all during the year, but now you see Republicans taking over, at least on the House side on Capitol Hill. They have the power to put that into actual action. But how likely is any of this to become law? Because we learned last night there's going to be a 51-seat Democratic majority in the Senate. That seems like you know, it would argue against any of this ever getting to Joe Biden's desk. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know how Washington works, right? This is unlikely to become law over the next two years. But the reason why this is really important is because it's a Republican attempt to start turning some of their rhetoric into actual reality. What can Congress really do to push back on some of these ESG proposals? And so this is how you do it. You put out, a, you put out an idea, you vet it amongst your caucus, you galvanize some public debate and you see what sticks so that if and when Republicans do end up controlling maybe both chambers of Congress as well as the White House, they have a suite of policy proposals ready to go. So I expect that this is just the beginning of this effort and you're going to hear a lot more to come. Elon, thanks. Yep, they're definitely teeing it up for next time. And coming up on today's three-stock lunch menu, all energy, but we've got choices. No matter your taste, oil, solar, or lithium energy, that's coming up next. to come here an exclusive interview with Southwest CEO Bob Jordan. That stock is having its worst day since September as they hold their investor day. What's got the market so upset? Power Lunch will be right back. 
Welcome back, everybody. It's time for our three-stock lunch, and today's menu is all energy. We're sipping on three bold analyst calls for 2023, starting with Halliburton, which JPM names as a top pick, saying they're bullish on U.S. shale and oil markets. Wells Fargo naming Enphase, the solar company, a top pick in clean energy. They even call its growth recession-proof. And Piedmont Lithium, Cowan calling it a best idea, in line for a boost from EV battery demand. Here to help us trade all three is Lee Munson. He's president and CIO of Portfolio Wealth Advisors. All right, Lee, welcome, sir. Let's kick things off with Halliburton. You a buyer? Yeah, I, 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 would, I would be a buyer on that, and I'll tell you why. First thing is Halliburton all year has just been going along with the XLE index, you know, it's along with the sector. So you have to think, if I'm going to buy an individual stock, what is going to make that outperform and compensate me versus just buying an ETF in the energy sector? And I think what J.P. Morgan was alerting us to is that half their earnings is really about OPEC and stuff outside the U.S. shale. Uh, and, and I think that if you're looking forward, where are we going to have more CapEx? I agree. I think OPEC's going to have to do it. OPEC can't even get their quotas now. So they're going to have to spend because they've been underspending for years and years and years. Do we really think that that's going to be uh, the same amount of spending as the U.S. shale? JPM doesn't think that. I tend to agree with that. So I think if you think that CapEx spending is going to happen, think open lockdowns in China are going to stop, and you think that uh, we're going to have a soft landing or energy demand, Halliburton is a good individual stock to, to try to jack up your energy data. All right, so let's go to the next one, which is Enphase. Do you like this idea that this is recession-proof? Is anything recession-proof? I love when analysts tell me it's like a little bedtime tale. Warm milk and cookies. You can't avoid the macro. You can't avoid the macro. Most of the, I have an Enphase you know, microinverter. It's fine. But you're betting that all these homeowners are still going to be doing you know, solar. A lot of that solar panel stuff is financed. Rates are going to be up. But I get what they mean. Here's the thing with Enphase. You're buying it because supposedly they're going to double their capacity over the next 12 months, meaning they're going to have more stuff to sell more easily. But the stock's trading at a 70 times next year's earnings. And I think that's rich. And plus, when you look at Wells, the price target's only 10% where it is now. That's not a lot of upside. I'd rather pick this up 10, 20% lower. Uh, and, and if you own this thing, Take a little profits from this year. Just do a little profit taking. There's nothing wrong with paying tax or ringing the cash register. It's done well. <laughs> nothing wrong with paying tax or ringing the cash register. How about the final name here? Piedmont Lithium. So I actually like Piedmont. If you're going to speculate in an individual stock versus just, you know, sleep at night in an index fund, this has all the things, right? They don't make money now, but they're going to make money soon like in the third quarter of next year, so says Callan, right? They've got to get these permits from the Carolinas. They got to, you got to have electric vehicles not hit the macro headwinds, right? Again, it's all about not uh, you know, avoiding the macro. But if you want to get in early on lithium, lithium that's sourced here in the United States, there's some big risks to this company, which I just said. But if all things work out, and you start having those lithium prices going up, I think this could be a big winner. But remember, out of the three stocks we talked about today, this is speculative. And think about it. You know, you can, 
the call suggests a 90% upside from here. So if you're looking for a little bit of spice in your portfolio, I would go for this one. A little bit of spice, a little bit of spice in our drink. I'm feeling maybe a little bit woozy after those three stocks at our lunch, but uh, Lee Munson, thank you for that. Really appreciate your insights here. And coming up, is the clock ticking for TikTok here in the U.S.? Negotiations between TikTok and the U.S. government being delayed now, but could this ultimately lead to a ban of the app? We'll discuss that one next. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Shares of Southwest Airlines are lowered today, even though they just reinstated the dividend, which was suspended at the start of the pandemic. The stock is up about 22 percent this quarter as travel demand rebounds. And they're hosting their investor day over at the New York Stock Exchange. Southwest CEO Robert Jordan joins our Phil LeBeau for an exclusive interview. Phil, take it away. Thank you very much, Kelly. Bob, thanks for joining us. Uh, Kelly set that up pretty well. You reinstate your dividend. You give a very optimistic forecast for the fourth quarter in terms of revenue growth. You're bullish on next year, and yet your stock is down almost 4% today. Where is the disconnect between the bullishness that you're presenting and what we're seeing from investors when it comes to not just Southwest, but airline stocks in general right now? You know, Phil, hey, first, it's, it's great to be with you. I wish we were together in person, but we're not. So I think you're in Chicago. So good to see you. I, 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 I'm not going to answer for the, the market in the really short term, term uh, like a day. I'm just really proud that we are the first airline to be able to reinstate our dividend. And not only that, but reinstate it in full. We've also got terrific momentum here in the fourth quarter. We, we're, our fourth quarter revenue trends are actually above the third, and we're going to take that momentum into 2023. And we presented a really good 2023 plan today that actually has the opportunity to return to net income levels that were pre-pandemic like. So I'm really proud of our team and our people and what we are able to talk about at our investor day. I saw your presentation and I hear your optimism. But the question remains for a lot of people, what happens if we see a recession? We've heard from some of your competitors and the executives at those airlines saying, look, we see no slowdown in demand. From your perspective, if we see a recession in this country, even a mild one, what does that potentially do to your outlook for 2023? Well, I think step one is plan appropriately. So we always plan conservatively. Our, our forecasts are very tepid in terms of GDP. Uh, the demand as we look forward, so look into uh, December and January and February, looks really strong. So our demand uh, trends have not changed. They are very strong. We've got a strong fuel hedge, 50% for 2023. That is certainly very helpful. Uh, and then there's a, there's a chance that given constraints in the industry, primarily pilot hiring, and we're not having any trouble hiring pilots at Southwest Airlines, but I think pilot hiring might be a constraint and that could constrain the industry capacity. But step one is planned appropriately, and we are planning for tepid growth in 2023. In terms of tepid growth for the, the economy overall, correct? For the economy overall, yeah, just planning for tepid GDP. Uh, the other thing really is we, most of our capacity next year, which is going to be roughly 15 percent growth, is going to go into markets that we, we, are, we were already in pre-pandemic. We are just restoring the 2019 network which means that these are flights that customers were already taking. We're just adding them back. And so that means that capacity comes on at much lower levels of risk. Uh, and we're looking forward to having our network fully restored to pre-pandemic levels here uh, at the end of 2023. 
Bob, you're uh, trimming the number of 737 MAXs that you expect to take delivery of next year from Boeing, in part because there is this lingering question that is out there about whether or not the certification of the 737 MAX 7, of which you've got many on order with Boeing, uh, if it's, there's going to be a waiver instituted by Congress or if there's going to have right. to be an entirely new process, which brings up the question about the future of the MAX 7. What's your outlook in terms of... Do you think that this can get resolved in Washington by the end of the year? Well, first, uh, our, our, our Boeing delivery plan has moved around a lot here in 22 and then in 23 and probably likely into 24. A lot of that is just supply, trained, uh, supply chain driven. It's not just the, uh, the MAX 7 certification issues. They're having supply chain issues, engine uh, with GE, just, just like every other company is suffering. But on the MAX 7, uh, Again, I don't want to speak for Boeing, but I'm comfortable that they will get the extension. Uh, we will get the aircraft certified. The, the, the MAX 8 is a terrific aircraft. I'm convinced the MAX 7 is also a terif uh, terrific aircraft. So we will get it certified if I was guessing here in 2023. Uh, it takes us about six months to put that aircraft into service after the certification. So there's a good chance that in my guess we don't fly one. Uh, in 2023, uh, which just means that they will push to 2024. But I think we ultimately get the MAX 7 certified and flying, and I'm looking forward to that. Bob, it's Eamon Javers here at CNBC headquarters. Good to see yes. you. Thanks for doing this. You flipped you at this issue uh, just a second ago in terms of pilot hiring. We're getting some headlines crossing the wires now from your investor day saying uh, that you guys are going to be able to hire 2,100 pilots next year. That's a huge number. I fly all the time, and it seems like everybody is having difficulty out there hiring pilots. So I'm wondering if you can tell us where those 2,100 pilots are going to come from. Do you have some kind of secret pipeline that the other airlines don't have? <laughs> We have no secret pipeline, but if you know a pilot, please send them to Southwest <laughs> Airlines. But I think there's a little confusion, which is uh, we are constrained, but our constraint is our training capacity. So our classrooms are full for pilots. Our simulators are full for pilots. Actually, we take three more simulators here that will go online February 1st of next year. So we are, we are not having trouble hiring pilots. We're getting all the, all the pilots that we can take and train. Our constraint is really training capacity. Uh, now, that's different than is the overall industry constrained. I think if you ask that question to maybe regional carriers, as an example, the story might be different. Uh, but we are not having trouble uh, hiring pilots at Southwest Airlines. Uh, a lot of those are coming from regionals. Some of those are coming from military, uh, some from corporate, as, as typical. But we are not having trouble hiring pilots at Southwest Airlines. Bob, it's Phil again. One last quick question. What's the status of yes, negotiations sir. with the pilots? I know they're requesting federal mediation. What's your, your sense in terms of potentially getting a deal maybe locked in by uh, halfway through next year? Well, first, negotiations are always hard. I'm glad that we are in the midst of closing out several of them, like uh, uh, IM142 with our customer service agent. So we just got a deal a few days ago with our flight instructors, uh, TW557. Uh, but our SWAPA, our, our, our pilots, and TW, uh, our, our flight attendants, those are large contracts that are open. They're in mediation. I'm very encouraged because we've got a really good mediator that knows Southwest Airlines, knows SWAPA. Uh, they are negotiating nearly every single week, working through sections. So I'm optimistic that we will make a lot of progress here, and we will get this done. We have terrific people. We've always paid great. We're going to pay great, and we will get these contracts done.
Bob Jordan, CEO of Southwest Airlines. Thank you, Bob, for joining us today from the New York Stock Exchange. And yes, next time we talk, I'm sure that it will be in person. Uh, Eamon and Kelly, I will send it back to you on a day where Southwest, the stock is down. But if you listen to their presentation, I mean, pretty bullish regarding their uh, expectations for next year. Yeah, and huge hiring numbers as well. Uh, that really jumped out. Phil, thank you. Our thanks to Bob as well. Let's get to a few stories now that caught our attention today. National security concerns are reportedly delaying a U.S. US TikTok national security deal. According to the Wall Street Journal, the government's concerns include how TikTok could share information related to its video recommendation algorithm. Lawmakers have been vocal about their security concerns. Republicans in the House are expected to take a close look at the app's ties to China. Wall Street is already looking ahead to which companies would benefit from a TikTok ban in the U.S. Uh, Meta, for instance, Bank of America and Cowan both say Meta, Snap and YouTube could be the biggest beneficiaries, amen. I mean, the question here is, what do you do, right? I mean, you, examining TikTok's ties to China. I mean, we know what TikTok's chi- ties to China are. The question is, if you want an app operating in the United States, which has that kind of surveillance capability and also that kind of propaganda capability for an entire population of young people, and I, I speak as a parent of teenagers who are on TikTok nearly constantly. Sure. I was on a trip with my daughter this weekend, and I participated in some TikTok videos. <laughs> uh, but you, you wonder, as the Chinese aggregate all that, what's the United States government going to do? You, it's a sort of a binary question. You ban it or you don't, right? The best way to solve this would be if Instagram ramps up Reels. As I've been messing around with it, it is not as good as TikTok in kind of sucking you into that algorithm, getting the content out there, and really making it an addictive experience. If they can make that better, they could cannibalize TikTok as it is as we stand with and maybe avoid the issue. But if not, then... Uh, they're going to have to wait till there's an outright ban, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing I'm watching is Apple, the tech giant, announcing it's stepping up its security with a new encryption system to ward off hackers and better protect iCloud data. The expanded end-to-end encryption is an optional feature called advanced data protection. It would uh, block most. Uh, it would make most iCloud data secure in the event of a massive hack, and it would also prevent Apple from being able to provide data in response to law enforcement requests. And this is a huge issue, Kelly. The FBI has had a problem with this encryption at Apple for years. They asked them not to do it. Apple sort of shelved the issue for a long time. Now they're coming out and doing the very thing that the FBI has said they don't want to do because it's going to block access to a treasure trove of information in all kinds of cases. No, it's a huge problem, it seems. Uh, I can't imagine that investors, they just want us to keep using our iPhones with confidence, uh, but it's a massive challenge for law enforcement. And once you do encrypt all of that, you're going to see the situation where the FBI is going to be holding up at press conferences, going to be holding up yes. iPhones and saying, we can't get into this phone from this terrorist, this child molester, this right. other kind of bad guy, and voicing frustration around that. That's potential headline blowback for Apple. Sure. I'm sure they've weighed all that, though. This has been going on for years. Yeah, but it's not over yet, is it? It's not. Eamon, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so it's much. It's so great to be here in person. <laughs> Thanks for watching Power Lunch, everybody. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.